0: You know, these days I'm really reflecting a lot on uh, the concept of what a compassionate system would be. I feel that uh, people generally know too little about systems and or too little about science. I think that's one reason the current uh, government is getting away with enormous cuts to science. I was talking to my next door neighbor who's the Dean of Science at Columbia. He runs uh, the Lamont-Doherty Environmental Research Campus at Columbia, which is in our backyard. And he said his research there, which of course a lot of it has to do with climate, is being going to be cut by 80-85 percent, which is astounding. It's a huge crisis. I was talking to someone who runs a neuroscience lab. He said he's expecting 20 percent, and 20 percent itself is crippling. So why is it that a government can get away with this? Why isn't there an uproar? Why is it that so few people understand science per se? And I think part of it has to do with the general lack of awareness of the systems that, in which we're enmeshed, the uh, systems of energy, the systems of economics, the systems of culture, the systems that would relate why science itself is so essential to uh, the betterment of our own lives and of society. And what that has to do, what a researcher in a lab has to do with any of us. I think there's a huge disconnect. And I think that uh, if we were better at explaining to kids when they're in school what systems are, and why systems matter, and how one thing over here relates to something over there, uh, that this wouldn't be so easy. That people would be more, as they grew through life and had this as background understanding, as a basic uh, scaffolding of knowledge, mm-hmm. would be making connections that just are not made today. and that. If uh, kids grew up without understanding, it would be quite a different world going in the future. For myself, I've, I feel that, uh, you know, the environment has, has been a long-term concern of mine and how things are going. Not just global warming, but the eight global systems that support life. There's a, you know, there's a carbon cycle. Everybody knows about that. That's the global warming poster child. But there's a phosphorus cycle. There's a question of, um, Availability of water, of biodiversity—you know, species dying—we've killed, uh, you know, a huge amount of species have died out in the last hundred years because of civilization spreading, parking lots, and palm oil plantations uh, destroying ecosystems. So, so there are eight global systems that support life, and the way we live on the planet now is inexorably eroding all eight of those. Well, no, the one exception, which is very telling, is ozone. Ozone, which, of course, protects us from carcinogenic rays of the sun, uh, was on the decline enormously. And then somehow there was a worldwide ban on ozone depleting industrial chemicals, particularly for refrigeration. And once that happened, the ozone layer started to replenish. Well, that's wonderful, because it's a map to what we might do if we could turn around the ways in which our lives themselves, in aggregate, are actually uh, destroying the natural world. But here again, there's that disconnect between what I do, the decisions I make, and the impacts. And I'm actually really trying to champion uh, systems thinking in schools. It's a new curriculum. One of the uh, systems, school systems that's been interested in this is the IB, the International Baccalaureate High Schools, which have very high academic standards. It's a global system. Uh, They're in countries around the world. And they want to bring this into their kids' uh, curriculum because they understand this is really important for their lives in the future. But they're actually combining it with Curriculum and compassion and empathy, because you can have a system's understanding, which is first rate, but if you don't care, if you don't, if the consequences of uh, systems don't matter, then you've got, uh, for example, rampant greed. You've got companies using science, using systems in their self-interest without caring about well, what are the side effects of this medication? Or uh, just today, I saw that. The uh, decision to outlaw one of the most common pesticides uh, that is used on farms worldwide because it's a danger to children and to farm workers was just repealed. The scientific evidence that this particular pesticide is a danger is overwhelming. However, uh, the decision was made not to pay attention to that, and I, I think it goes beyond the current administration of kind of scientific know nothings. I think that there's a, uh, a very large part of society, of the American voting populace, that likewise doesn't understand and doesn't care about science or uh, how science really is a measure of truth, you know, not an ultimate measure, but better than nothing. And so they disregard it, ignore it, and uh, people are able to make good money by continuing to make decisions, everyday decisions, uh, that are not in the service of society as a whole, particularly going into the future. And I think one of the important ways a system understanding could help, for example, with the environmental uh, momentum, which is so negative now, is understanding that we have a very narrow range of affordances. That are presented to us in the material world. What I mean by that is that I have this jacket, you know, you have this table or the chair I'm sitting on, which is manufactured in ways that have more or less been the same for a century. And only in the last 10 or 15 years have we had a science that offers a metric for understanding the impacts of the life cycle of any of these objects from beginning to end in terms of how they impact those eight global systems. Now that we have that data and a metric for it, we can better manage the processes uh, that are entailed in in the use and manufacture of every object we own. People aren't doing it, but it can be done now. So human nature has not changed since the Paleolithic. Uh, There was a very long period in human evolution where our instinctual nature was shaped, and it's extremely strong, and I think that very nature has led us in many ways into our current conundrum. The reason is this. One of the things that uh, has helped humans survive, and I mean in early evolution, in times when you could die of starvation, when you could be eaten by a predator, uh, was the... uh, instinct to accumulate as much as you can because you may not have a chance to do it again. Mm -hmm. So greed is a basic part of human nature and that has been amped up enormously in the last century or so because of the uh, our ability to take advantage of fossil fuel. We've had access to manipulate more energy than ever in human history. And that's brought a huge increase in in, uh, sheer growth of the material world, as well as the abundance each of us experiences in the first world, not in the third or fifth. And I don't think that that is going to change. I don't think that we're going to beat the human instinct to, uh, you know, eat fat, sugar, accumulate as much as you can, because. Times could get hard. That's very deeply ingrained in in the human game plan. What we can do though is use our ability to invent, to innovate, to rethink, which has created the uh, marvelous material world we have now, to trick the Paleolithic brain. And this is where systems thinking comes in again too. So I mentioned that uh, the life cycle of any material product shows that it impinges negatively on the global systems that support life. You aggregate that and you have the crises that we are facing now, particularly going in the next 50 or 100 years. So we make concrete, brick, steel, and glass basically with the Bronze Age method. We take a bunch of materials, we mix them together. We heat them at a very high temperature for a very long time, and voila, we have steel, glass, brick, concrete. Well, why don't we reinvent that? Why do we have to use so much heat for such a long time? In fact, there's some. Um, one lab I just heard about out in Silicon Valley—they reinvented the brick. They found that you could mix together some other chemicals. I don't know which, but you could heat the the. Uh, brick to be at a lower temperature for a shorter time. Well, actually, if you were to take that to scale, that's an enormous difference in the cumulative impact of bricks. You do it with concrete, steel. In other words, I think it's time for us to reinvent everything in the material world in light of a, our more sophisticated understanding of physics, chemistry, and so on, and biology, and b, in light of the fact that none of it has changed. The industrial platforms, industrial processes that we use now haven't budged much uh, in the last century. That's why petrochemicals, for example, are the basis Mm -hmm. of so much we use. Like plastics, you know, water in plastic bottles is a disaster. These plastic bottles end up in the ocean. And then uh, they break down into what are called noodles, which are small bits, not beyond that, but fish and aquatic life think it's food. So if you open the stomach of a whale, you see that because it's at the top of a certain food chain, or uh, one of the, um, you know, like tuna, something that eats other fish, you find it's full of plastic. And that plastic is killing sea life. So why don't we rethink plastic? We've got so much amazing science going on. Why don't we reinvent the things that are screwing up the world. I think one of the most important challenges is how do you get anybody really to do this? I say we should do this, we should do that. Who's this we? And here actually I'm I'm somewhat encouraged because what I'm seeing is that, for example, when it comes to um, changing the way industry does things, there are groups within the business sector, there are groups in companies that are doing that are starting to make the kinds of changes I'd like to see happen because it's the right thing to do. They're doing it because it fits their values and they're incorporating this into their mission. I think they're doing it for a couple of reasons. One, feels good to them. Second, feels good to the people they have. It helps retain talent. And third, as time goes on, and this is a very important factor, the generation which is now in childhood, as it grows into adulthood, will be facing ever more dire circumstances in the natural world, let alone the economic and political world. Who knows, doesn't seem to go in, the trajectories of all those don't seem to be that great. But I think it will mean that they place a greater value on a particular kind of ethical perspective, that they want to join an outfit, an organization, a company uh, that, whose values fit their values, that they can feel good about. And companies are seeing that, both in terms of who are going to be their customers. You know, Companies actually don't care that much about customers in, in the upper demographics. They want young people. They want young people because if they get brand loyalty when someone's young, they have it for the rest of their life. So that's a maximal bang for their buck. And they're seeing that the appeal of doing the right thing in this, this regard uh, has a lot of payoffs. So. What's happening, and it, and I like the fact that it's happening this way, it's, it's beyond politics. It's just good business. There's a lot of, um, actually trillions of dollars in what's called impact investing. Impact investing is putting your money in a, a business that's gonna make money the right way, not the wrong way. And that gives more and more capital to people who are trying to do things in a better way. The other thing is happening is that B2B, that is between businesses, there is a huge amount of action in terms of, for example, not buying palm oil from a plantation uh, that uh, was put in place by clear-cutting a jungle. There's a lot of that going on in Indonesia, goes on in Brazil, goes on around the world, but big companies like Unilever won't touch that palm oil. This means that they have to change the way palm oil is sold. You know, <laughs> I have to tell you a side story about palm oil. I happened to meet the grandniece of a man who founded a business in Belgium in the 19th century called Uni. It was the biggest margin maker in that part of Europe. This guy claimed he had the patent on margin, and he sued competitors and put him out of business. He was known as a real son of a bitch. This man, who made Uni a a big brand, realized that there was another company around that used a large amount of palm oil, which is the main ingredient of margarine. It was Lever Brothers soap. And so they, in the 30s, they combined and made Unilever. So Unilever, uh, in its original DNA, from a value point of view, uh, was not really that great. However, fast forward, a friend of mine was coaching the one of the co-CEOs of Unilever was when they bought Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Ben and Why did they buy Ben and Jerry's ice cream? He said, it's because we hope that the value, the values of Ben and Jerry will infect the rest of the organization. Fast forward again, the current CEO of Unilever is a guy named Paul Pullman, who came up through the company, who has Uh, Announced extremely ambitious and very green goals for the company, not just lowering carbon, most companies are doing that, but uh, he also announced a plan to uh, help a half million small farms in the third world become suppliers to Unilever. What that means is they have a steady income. They've got to upgrade their methodology of farming, but it's good for Unilever going in the future, but also the The World Bank says the best way to help a local, impoverished, rural economy is exactly this, because then you get better education, better health, and a better local economy generally. So Unilever is doing the right thing for a number of reasons. And that's I think, uh, exemplifies the kind of changes that companies can be making. And more and more companies are and will be. And the reason I like this is because it's an end run around politics. It doesn't matter that you know the US isn't meeting its uh, target for the, uh, the last climate agreement, I think, in Paris, because so many companies are acting in a way that are maintain- achieving those goals that will probably reach it anyway, despite what government policy says. So I feel that governments are a little paralyzed by right-left factions. Business is not. And I th- I really feel uh, that it has an open runway for this kind of thing. It's going in the right direction. Now then, there's another general trend which I I'm kind of concerned about. I don't really know that much about, but it's artificial intelligence. It's the fact that big data can come up with algorithms that predict human behavior much better than any human could, and that. Uh, extrapolating into the future you know there could be i don't know what androids robots that operate by very powerful algorithms and can outthink humans and here i'm worried about the same thing i'm worried about with systems generally is where is the ethical dimension in this how do you get a an artificial intelligence system to care about humans to uh, care about the human future or human welfare at all. Somehow that has to be programmed in and I don't hear much discussion about that. Troubles me. So as power migrates from government to companies or to Silicon Valley or to billionaires, the worry is that uh, the kind of goodwill and good intentions that I'm flagging in the business community won't travel (laughs) <laughs> with the power to create algorithms that run our lives who are the mysterious people who are writing these codes uh, you know what assumptions are they making that again give us a system that has a narrow range of affordances what the choices you can make and those choices are arbitrary someone decided that you know this algorithm should be uh, behind your phone in your Uh, Apple TV or wherever it is, and you don't have other choices. You're blind to the other choices. So what's happening as artificial intelligence, as code, as algorithms take over our lives and invade it uh, in a very kind of user-friendly way is we don't see what we're losing. We don't see what the other choices are, nor do we have, as in politics, any ability to vote for this versus that. We're, in a way, we're very passive receptors of whatever assumptions are being made for us, but we're blind to those very assumptions. I I see that as a real danger. The dilemma is that the the people in the world that is mattering more going into the future, like the tech world, the AI world, uh, may have good intentions going in, but power does tend to corrupt and Even and you may think that I have good intention, but I'd like to get a couple billion more so that I can put it into uh, effect. However, in getting there, you may leave those intentions aside and how to inoculate a society against that. This is the other half of uh, a program I'm getting really interested in. In fact, I mentioned the International Baccalaureate schools. I'm helping I'm advising them on a curriculum They're implementing systems learning uh, in their schools, but they're also combining it with compassion. Because if you don't don't care about people, the world, uh, I think, will get more and more dismal if the people who have the actual power don't. No, 20 years ago when I wrote Emotional Intelligence, I was actually arguing for a curriculum that would teach kids the range of self-awareness, self-regulation, empathy, social skills, that is emotional intelligence. It's called social-emotional learning. It's in thousands of schools around the world now. Some states have made it mandatory. So what I'm talking about uh, implementing an empathy unit is just piggybacking on something that exists now and is spreading. And it's spreading because the data, uh, which has been collected since the get-go, is very supportive. There's a guy, uh, Roger Weisberg, was the first director of the uh, Collaborative for social advanced, uh, for Academic Social Emotional Learning. He's a hard-nosed psychologist who has been documenting how this matters to kids from day one. And you know, there was a huge meta-analysis that had a quarter of a million kids, uh, some of wh- whom went through it and some that were matched demographically who didn't. And it showed that there was a huge 10% reduction in antisocial behavior, fights in school, bullying, huge uh, 10% in liking school, so-called pro-social behaviors, and so on. Academic achievement went up 11%. So it helps because, you know, kids, particularly once they're in elementary school, middle school and high school, are more oriented toward their peers than anyone else and is the dramas you know they didn't invite me to the party things like that that really occupy kids minds and if you can help them manage that part of their lives they can pay more attention in school that seems to be what happens it has to do with the varieties of empathy you know there are three this is well established now in neuroscience that there are three kinds of empathy there's cognitive empathy which is the kind of empathy an algorithm will give you with deep you know uh, big data studies so you know how people think about things. It's understanding people's mental models and that allows you to manipulate their mental models like they've been doing say at Uber to get drivers to drive more. Uh, There's no compassion in that. A second kind of empathy and this is a different neural circuit is emotional where you feel how other people feel and that could lead to compassion, but if that other person is suffering and in pain and you feel the same, most people actually tune out. They don't, they don't want to feel that pain of the other person, and so they don't help them, which is the final stage. Uh, however, emotional empathy can also be used by a skilled um, politician or dictator to manipulate crowds. So it's, it's not particularly good for society. The third kind, which is called empathic concern, uses the circuitry, which is different from the first two, for parental caretaking. This is basic mammalian wiring. It's a parent's love for a child. And you actually care about the other person. It turns out that neuroplasticity, which is the notion that you can build or degrade neural circuitry by using it or not. And that practice makes a circuit stronger. Neuroplasticity uh, has been combined now with the understanding of the three kinds of empathy. There's very good work coming out of Tanya Singer's lab at Max Planck Institute, uh, which shows that if people uh, systematically train one or the other of those three circuits, their abilities in that particular uh, target kind of empathy get better and the circuitry underlying it gets stronger. So you can do that for, for empathic concern. And the IB people are combining, helping kids build that circuitry so they genuinely care about other people with the systems understanding. I think that is the kind of combination of pure cognitive power that is science, systems learning, and real heart that is actual concern for human welfare that will keep us on the right track going into the future. I I think that if we don't have that, uh, I kind of despair for where we're going to go.